What's up, everybody? How you doing? Good. All right. I am so excited to be here with you guys. Oh, I see. Hold on. There we go. So excited to be here with you guys. I want to welcome you out this morning. Um, I'm excited for the passage I'm preaching today. It is Daniel chapter 7. Uh, so there's a lot to cover, so we're going to hop right in. Uh, we have been in our Brave series, uh, where we have been looking at the God of Daniel and how he was able to make Daniel brave in the midst of Babylon, in exile. And we've been talking about the fact that the same God can give us hope and courage today to help us be brave in the middle of our circumstances, both now and into the future. Just a quick recap, last week, Alan was talking about uh, Daniel in the lion's den. So one of those famous uh, Sunday school stories that most of us have heard, heard about, uh, where Daniel took a righteous stand and he, uh, he prayed to God, regardless of what the mandate or the law was. As a result, he was thrown into the lion's den and he faced certain death. God performs a miracle, shuts the mouth of the lion and God receives glory and Daniel is promoted. Such an amazing story. And we've really been following Dan and the gang in their journeys through Babylon. Uh, today, though, we're gonna take a quick step back from Babylon, and we're gonna slip into a series of dreams and visions that God takes Daniel through. And the goal and intention of this is to show him the big picture, some other things that are going on that Daniel might not see. I just wanna give you guys a heads up before we hop in, because this is gonna help us kind of get our minds right around what we're about to read we are gonna be reading what is called apocalyptic literature. So I don't know how many of you guys know, but the Bible is written in different, many different literary forms. You have letters in the New Testament, like Ephesians and Galatians, where Paul is writing to different churches. We have songs that are being sang in the book of Psalms, right? And what we're about to read is apocalyptic literature. So Revelations is apocalyptic literature. You see it in um, some of the older pro uh, prophets in the Old Testament. But... Apocalyptic literature is not end of the world always, right? That's not what it means directly. Apocalyptic literature is actually meant to be an unveiling, a revealing of what God wants to show you. And so God will show us these pictures that we're about to, to, uh, to read, and it's meant to paint and speak what words really can't and don't. And it's as if God pulls back the curtain and shows us how he really sees things. And so we should be really excited about this. Are you guys ready to hop in? Yeah. All right. Last thing, before we hop into this, um, Daniel, I just want to describe for a quick moment what this dream was like for Daniel. If you guys can put yourself in a situation, have you ever woke up like super exhausted? Like you had a good night's sleep. It was eight to nine hours, but you wake up like exhausted. If you think about those nights, those are usually nights where you like were doing a whole shift like at work in your dream, you know, and you're so tired from it, or maybe there's just like some weird tension or like relationship drama or a scary dream, and you just wake up like exhausted and scared and it wasn't restful. This is the kind of dream that Daniel had. He actually describes it and says, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts terrified me greatly and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. That's how this dream ends. All right, turning your Bibles to Daniel chapter seven. Should be up there on the screens for you. Uh, we're gonna start in verse two. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea different uh, from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. 
and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth, in its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and his hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000s stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one, like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. Crazy dream, right? There is a lot going on in this dream. And so what I wanna do, we're just gonna spend a few minutes, I wanna unpack this dream. And part of that is that this is in here for a reason. This is meant to be an unveiling for us to understand some things. And oftentimes when we come to texts and passages like this, we just go, bears, lions, I'm out. This doesn't make sense to me, I don't get it. And we just go, oh, I didn't go to seminary. But actually, these things are in scripture because God wants us to mind the depth of it. And so we don't have to understand everything fully, but there's some things that we can go, all right, that makes sense. And the rest, Lord, we will continue to seek you to understand what that means. So I'm gonna do my best to help explain some of this for us. Um, so just go along with me for the ride. All right, so I'm gonna talk about these dreams. It essentially has four different sections to it. The first one, Daniel's watching, the four winds of heaven stir up the seas. Seas in prophetic language always describes nations. So these four different nations and empires rise up. The first one is a lion with eagle's wings, right? There's a bit, bit of regality and pride right there, right? The, the wings are plucked off. The lion is made to stand up like a man on two feet, and he's given the mind of a man. This lion with wings represents Babylon. And Daniel would have known this in this dream because Babylon itself used this as their mascot, so to speak. This would have been what was on their city gates and on their flags. This represented Babylon. And the lion 
whose wings were plucked off and was made to stand up like a man and given the mind of a man represents King Nebuchadnezzar, who himself exalted himself above the Lord because of what he was able to, to, uh, to accomplish. And God humbled him like a beast to eat and graze in the field until he, he, he looked towards heaven in repentance. And God restored him to a man and gave him the mind of a man. This was a Babylonian empire. The next one that we see, the bear, the vicious bear, is the Medo-Persian Empire, right? So this is something that we gather from history as we look back and see God was showing us what would happen. The Medes and the Persians were the ones that overthrew the Babylonian Empire. And this empire was uh, ferocious, right? I don't know about you guys. I'm not telling anybody to see this movie, but if you've ever seen The Revenant, there's a nasty bear scene in there, and I'm scared of bears just alone because of that. So... This kingdom was vicious. It has three ribs in its mouth, in between its teeth. This symbolized the Medo-Persian Empire. And what's up with the whole, you know, it's raised up on one side. That's to say that there's gonna be one kingdom that's made up of two parts. And one of those parts would rise in prominence. And that was the Persian Empire. That was a stronger, more dominating force of the Medo-Persian Empire. The three bones in its mouth seem to symbolize the three kingdoms that it would overcome in, on its pursuit to power, which is the Lydian Empire, the Egyptian Empire, and the Babylonian Empire. All right, you guys tracking with me? Okay, third empire that rises up. We see a leopard. Leopards are fast. This leopard has wings. It's super fast. Not only is it fast, but it has four heads that can see in every direction. This symbolizes a, a kingdom that would move extremely fast and conquer very quickly and not really have limitations or bound. And does anybody know what kingdom this was? Almost. The, there we go. It was a Grecian empire. I got some history students in here. All right, it was a Grecian empire led by none other than Alexander the Great, right? Who at age 32 had conquered all of the known world. I feel a bit behind in my career progression at this point. So he'd conquered the entire world. When, he, when his kingdom fell, it was divided into four parts, symbolizing the four heads of this leopard. All right, the fourth kingdom, I'm gonna refer to my notes here. The fourth kingdom can be a bit confusing, okay? Um, and it's confusing for Daniel. That's why, if you read on in this chapter, and I wanna encourage you guys to, I can't go through all of it today, but he talks about, uh, he talks to somebody in the dream and he goes, hey, tell me what these four beasts are Tell me about the fourth one specifically and talk to me about this little horn. So this fourth beast to him, we could just tell, he can't even describe it. It's terrifying. He didn't even try. He didn't say, oh, it's like a salamander with fish gills. He didn't do any of that stuff. He just said that this fourth kingdom was like terrifying, right? So we're not gonna take all the liberties today to nail this thing down exactly, to, un to, to say, hey, we got this down, but we're gonna talk about what I feel pretty confident in, and people may disagree with me, but this seems to represent the Roman Empire. It makes sense because of the fact, and there's debate about this, but it makes sense because of the fact that, A, the Bible tends to interpret itself. If you look at Daniel chapter two, the fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire also was super mighty when it came to military might. They were a crushing, devouring force. They were the ones that popularized using iron weapons. It's a kingdom made of iron. So it's, pretty, it's, it's a pretty safe guess for us to say this is a Roman kingdom. But you may be going, uh, but what I don't understand is this little horn and, and all this stuff, right? There was an antichrist spirit within that kingdom. His name was Nero. 
right? All earthly kingdoms, there's an antichrist spirit. But with this one, there was, a, there was a big blow dealt to the church during the Roman Empire time. So the mystery seemingly is, is that the story still continues today. And that's where we kind of get stuck because we're going Roman Empire. I don't see anybody walking around in skirts and, and red uh, you know, plumes over their heads, right? But if we think back to that idol in Daniel chapter two, we see that the iron legs transition into feet made of iron and clay. And so seemingly this kingdom, uh, it is reasonable for us to assume that this fourth kingdom possesses remnants of the Roman Empire and that it will reemerge in some way, shape, and form and make way for the Antichrist. What we know about this fourth kingdom is that we must be in this fourth kingdom. The other three no longer exist. The fourth one, we've seen a portion of it and we have not seen the rest of it, which means we have to be in the middle of this thing. The Antichrist is real and he has not yet come. He will persecute the church, but Jesus will overcome. That's what we know about the fourth kingdom. All right, so there's the animals. The next thing Daniel sees is these thrones set in place. In the ancient of days, God the Father sits down on the throne and he is marked with absolute purity, holiness, and righteousness as he has white hair, white robes. We see that he is marked with power and judgment as fire surrounds his throne and is issued out from his very presence. We see that he is seated in authority, absolute authority, as thousands serve him and thousands times 10,000s stand before him. The books are open and court is now in session. So this is not like Judge Judy. There are no cameras. There is no defense attorneys. This is God the Father, the Ancient of Days, a holy, uh, ju- a holy jury, jury, right? And books that are open that have an accurate, truthful account. The enemy, the little horn, talks smack. He speaks great words. It's not great words like awesome words. They're they're like arrogant words against the Lord. And in a second, in God's timing, he deals away with him. The little horn, the fourth kingdom, the beast, Satan is done. And then we see Jesus, one like the son of man, riding in on the clouds, escorted before the father. And we go, man, (laughs) he goes to the throne. He has access to the throne. He belongs there. And he goes and God the Father hands him dominion. He hands him glory and he hands him keys to a kingdom. That is a story that we just read about. So when we look at this, it's important for us to understand the theme that earthly kingdoms will rise and fall by man. God always sits in judgment and in power and in authority over those. The enemy will try, he has been trying since the beginning of time to overthrow God. He won't, and he'll be dealt with in time. And Jesus will receive all power and authority and a kingdom. That is the story, all right. Okay, dreams are cool to understand, but they, they point to the main story. So let's focus on the main theme. When we hear this story, it ends amazingly The fact that God is in all power and all control, that's amazing. This is great news. But why does it seem so scary? As you think right now about the possibility that things will get worse, the fact that the Antichrist will come, the church will be persecuted. This is truth, brothers and sisters. That seems scary. 
How can we be brave? We probably feel a bit like Daniel at the end of this dream. Kingdoms rising and falling is very costly. It was costly for Daniel. Daniel was in the midst of this Babylonian empire. He'd already been to Babylon University, right? He had position and prominence. And so to, to see in this dream that the kingdom that he's a part of, even though it's not, not his home and it's not what he wanted, that they're gonna get overthrown, that's scarier. Who's a new, new sheriff in town? Am I gonna lose my stat? Am I gonna lose my life, right? New kingdoms come, they overthrow, they, they kill the officials, right? So this was a scary and costly thing for them. It is also a costly thing for us. When we think about the kingdom of the United States of America falling, that is scary. If we fail, if we stopped being the world police and somebody else was dominating and this empire was falling, it would look like unrest in the streets, social unrest. It would look like physical, like war. We haven't seen those things. That is scary to us. It looks like, oh man, I had plans to retire and to move to Hawaii and that's not going well. It looks like I can't send my kids to this college because they don't wanna be vaccinated and these times are harder. Whenever kingdoms rise and fall, this is difficult for us and it is scary. So how can we be brave in the face of rising and falling governments? How can we be brave in this future? I think the quick question is what is bravery? So according to the dictionary of Siri, brave means ready to face and endure danger and pain, showing courage. Are you ready to embrace and endure pain? Are you ready to face danger? The answer is like, no. (laughs) No, Lord, please don't. The beautiful part is that this story is not, it doesn't rest on us and in our ability and how we feel. It's in the God that we serve. So the big idea that we're gonna look at what we see from Daniel is that if you trust in God's sovereign power, then you will be brave. If you trust in God's sovereign power, then it will make you brave. That is a big idea and we're gonna see that. Why? Can we trust in God's sovereign power? I know you guys hear that and we go, oh, that sounds great. Yeah, I trust in God. I'll be brave. But why can we trust in, his God, in God's sovereign power? Well, it's because he, he knows what's, what's coming. It's because he's in control. And it's because he's already overcome. And those are the three, three things that we're gonna look at in Daniel. So the first one, why can we trust in God's sovereign power to make me brave? Because he knows what's coming. Do you? Does anybody in here know who in the next five minutes is gonna sneeze? And I'm sorry for whoever that is because I probably just made you uncomfortable. Does anybody know afterwards when you go try to get your sandwich after lunch if they're gonna have the saggio parmesan bread that you want? Does anybody have any idea at the end of this week, are you gonna celebrate because it was an amazing week or are you gonna lament and cry because it was hard? We have no idea. But you know who does? God does. God does, and there's comfort in that. Guys, look around this room. Everybody, I wanna see heads turn. Look at, the, look at the people in the room. The Ancient of Days 
knows everything about each of you in this room. Every single thing. And that is meant to be a comfort to us. Some of you right now are going, God, you know my anxiety is at a nine out of 10 right now. And I'm trying, but I feel like I'm a crack. Some of you are going, this marriage is so hard and I'm doing everything that I can and I don't know if it's gonna survive. But God knows and he sees you. And some of us hear that and we go, oh, God knows, instant shame. But I just wanna tell you, he loves you. That is a comfort to you today. We can respond to him. The ancient of days knows every single thing about us. Isaiah 46, nine through 10 says, this is where God tells you himself. He says, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done saying my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. God proves to us that he knows what's coming through prophecy. We just looked at these four different kingdoms and he goes, hey, yeah, Dan, I'm gonna tell you a little something so you know, go ahead and record it for all the other people that are gonna look back in time and, and know that I told you what was gonna happen. He does that to us through prophecy. He shares, he goes, I know what's gonna happen. That is meant to be a comfort to us. God knows. It's not gonna catch him off guard. And this is the thing, for us, knowing that he knows means we don't have to. We don't have to, so we rest in that. It's not easy, but we rest in that, God knows. We can be brave because God knows what's coming. Let's look at the second reason why we can be brave. What's another reason? It's because God is in control always. Can you guys say it with me? God is in control always. One more time. God is in control always. We have to remind ourselves of this. We have to say it out loud because our souls need to hear it. God is in control always. When we look at Daniel, God knew that the Babylonian empire was gonna come, that all these kingdoms would try to rebel against him. He knew that was gonna happen. That was not his will, his design in the garden. That wasn't what he planned. But he said, guess what? I'm in, I'm in control over it anyways. So I'm gonna be able to work these things out. When we look at God's sovereign power, when we go, I could trust in that. I could trust in the fact that he's in control. When we look at it, it doesn't mean that he makes these things happen. We struggle because we go, God, you made that bad thing happen. Or why didn't you stop this thing because you could have? Because there's free will. But God in his goodness says, look, all this stuff that I don't want to happen is gonna happen, but I'm gonna bend it. And I'm gonna change it and I'm gonna make it work for your good and for my glory. And I just wanna pause there. Christians, we love for my good. We love for my good. We're like, God, yeah, for my good, right? And so we sit there and we, and we go, yeah, Lord, I really want this person. I think they're the one. Um, would you make this happen? Uh, please. And we're just like, we're, we're nervous that his, his will is not our will. The reason we struggle to trust God is not because we don't believe that he could do it. It's not because we don't see it in scripture. It's because we are afraid that what we think is for our good is not the same thing that God thinks is for our good. And so an example of this is like, you lose your job. You got bills to pay. You go, all right, God, uh, look, I believe it, I receive it. Three weeks, give me a job. I'm gonna apply for these three. I got these three interviews lined up. And you go, Lord, just make it work. I trust you. If I spend a lot of time in prayer, it's gonna happen. I, I believe it. 
And then you go do those jobs and you don't get it, you don't get a job. You go do the interviews, you don't get a job. And you go, God, that was for my good. Why didn't that happen? How am I gonna pay my bills? Right? But God's actually standing there and he's going, check this out. He goes, son, you're actually gonna work some side jobs in the meantime because I need you to, to show that person Jesus because they need to meet me. And he goes, and in that, your life group's gonna gather around you and they're gonna show you the generosity of what it means to be a part of a community. And guess what? At the end of this, you will trust me more because I provided for you in a moment that you never could. He goes, that's what we need. That's what we need. God knows. We don't know. He's in control. We're not in control. So can we just say, God, for your glory, work it out. I trust you. Work it out. Let me give you a quick example of this. Oh, there's so much good stuff. All right, let me give you a quick example of this. God's sovereign power, right? Check this out. Babylon. God hated Babylon. All throughout scriptures, he, he, he doesn't like Babylon. Um, the reasons why is because their wickedness, their arrogance, their self-indulgence, and their brutality towards his people. He was not happy about that kingdom. Yet, he goes, I'm gonna allow them to rise to power and I'm gonna use it for my good and for, for my people's good and for his glory. And the way that he did this is he actually used Babylon to judge Israel. That doesn't feel good, but he used them to judge Israel. We see it in Jeremiah 25, eight through nine. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north. He's talking to Israel in this. Declares the Lord for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. And he does it. And Babylon comes, they destroy Jerusalem, they take back the gold and the, the silver items from the temple, and they take it back to Babylon. They grab the people and they take them back to Babylon and they burn down the temple. That did not feel like it was for our good. Israel had to be struggling with that. What is happening? We're God's people. This is happening to us? Does that sound like us right now? A little bit. I've cried like that. It ain't supposed to be like this. All right, look. Another way God interjects with his Babylonian empire is when they took back the silver and gold, they're probably like, hey, yeah, we got the best there is from Jerusalem. They actually became a storehouse for it. Babylon held on to these things that actually as the Medes and the Persians came in and took over Babylon, God would raise up Cyrus the Great of that empire to take those very silver and gold items and give them back to the Jews to take back into their land. That is amazing, this full picture of what God does. And you know what's also cool about it is that he takes Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, this proud enemy of the Lord, and he makes him a humble servant. And Nebuchadnezzar, as a result, declares the excellencies of God throughout his entire kingdom. And we, people had to come to know the Lord. They had to know the God of Daniel. This is amazing. God in his sovereign power is able to work things out because he's in control. So if God was in control in the midst of turbulent kingdoms, if God's power was on display when Israel went into captivity, if God was working through the wicked rulers to accomplish his will, if God brought favor in unlikely circumstances, then can we trust that God will do the same for us? Can we trust that God is at work in the middle of COVID? Can we trust that he is in control 
over the kingdom of the United States of America, even when it looks like it's in decline. Church, we got to settle this in our hearts. God is in control always, always. Whatever it is, whatever you're going through right now, trust in God's sovereign power. He is in control over it. All right, guys, I saved the best for last. All right, why can I trust in God's sovereign power? Because he has already overcome. I'll just leave you there for a second. How is he already won? Many of us are thinking right now and feeling right, like this sounds amazing and we believe it, but in our hearts, we're going, Lord, all is not well. Sin is still wreaking havoc in, in families. There's so much turbulence. We are losing people that we love. Our wife and our family just lost her nana this last week. That hurts. We grieve. There's three people I know in this community that have lost people they love in the last two to three weeks. I know two other people whose parents are facing some pretty difficult prognosis. And we're going, Lord, would you work in this situation? Would you bring healing? Would you restore? And we, we grieve with each other in that. But guys, God grieves with us too. And he is eager to put death to death. While we grieve, we do it with hope and we do it in, with faith and in faith because Jesus has already overcome. As Christians, we often see and love the sacrifice of the cross. Jesus died for me so I can go to heaven. But we, we fail to remember the power of the cross. Like what was accomplished when Jesus was there? Through Jesus, through his death, there is power. There was life that came from that. I'll give you a quick example. Because my wife's grandmother passed away, some family came in town and her cousin was, was sitting down chatting and she's just bawling about losing her grandmother. She's super sad about it. And she's talking about regrets of not having spent time with her and talking about her sister's life being in shambles and all this stuff. And in the end of it, we got to, I got to share the gospel with her and she received Christ, right? In death, God brings life. And guess what? The kicker is she called a couple days later and said, I wanna get baptized. She's getting baptized next week. And I didn't even talk to her about that, so maybe I'm not a good pastor, but, but she, she wants to get baptized, and it's amazing. I'm excited. Look, this is why we struggle with this, because we live in the gap of, Jesus, you already sentenced Satan to death. You said that he's gonna die. And we're also waiting for him to bind him up and throw him in the lake of fire. That's the spot we stand in. Jesus, you died for me. You resurrected. You went to be with your father. You're gonna go and prepare a place for me. And we're waiting for him to bring us physically into the kingdom. And so we struggle with that. We stand here and we're like, ooh, like he did it, but it's not done. And so like we, we kind of like empty the cross of power. So I just, in this moment, I just wanna like, can we shift our perspective and step back away from this? And we're gonna step in the shoes of the Jews 
Because there was something in their resistance towards God that they ultimately understood that we forget a little bit. And it all surrounds the controversy of son of man. Jesus calling himself the son of man. So this was a term, a self-proclaimed term that Jesus used more than any other term. Over 80 times in the New Testament, he referred to himself as the son of man. And you go, why? Why not Messiah? I would have chose Savior. Surely, son of God, that would have validated his ministry, right? But he didn't. Son of God was, to the Jews, was a pretty commonplace term. It wasn't, it was divine, but it wasn't exactly divine. It wasn't what we think of when we hear son of God. Because good angels and bad angels were called sons of God. Adam was called a son of God. You and I are sons of God. Daughters implied, right? But to claim to be the son of man was a bold claim. It actually implied the opposite, that you were not merely a man, but that you were truly divine. Why is that? That's because the Jews knew Daniel chapter seven that we're in right now. And so when they heard the term son of man, they saw the one who was riding in on the clouds that would receive all power, all dominion, and a kingdom. And so for Jesus to say that he was the son of man, whoo, they did not like it. They saw that he was the one who came to the ancient of days, that he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. By claiming to be the son of man, Jesus was saying that all of the worship that all of creation gives to God, that ascribes to him that he deserves, I'm gonna receive. And that means that I'm God. And they hated this because they hated him. We see it in Mark 14, six. Again, the high priest questioned him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard this blasphemy. When Jesus claimed to be the son of man, he was claiming to be fully human. Yet, being fully God, he was the only one that was able to defeat the beast, Satan. You and I, all of us, men and women in here, we have faced temptation, and we have fallen, and we have forfeited the kingdom that God was giving us to share and partner with him in the garden. But one didn't, and that was Jesus. That's what the Son of Man was. Jesus is one, he made it past every test, and the last one was the cross. When Jesus willingly went to the cross, he, he was condemned like a man with sin. But because he had no sin, he was able to take our judgment on himself. He was able to be the perfect substitute and actually satisfy the wrath of God. Because sin equals death, disobedience equals death, and he was a perfect man, who stood in the gap for us. And he canceled our debts. When he gave up his life, he looked death in the face, and because it had no legal holds on him, he resurrected in triumph. That is a son of man. That is a God that we serve. Revelations 1.18, as I come in the land, in two minutes, says, I am the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades. So when Jesus died, he won. It is finished, and that is where we live today. That is where we stand. He died, 
He won, he resurrected, it is finished. We have to find our faith and trust in that. So can we trust his sovereign power to overcome today because he's already overcome? Yes, we absolutely can. In Matthew 16, 19, Jesus says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus invites us into partnership to bring this kingdom in greater measure on this earth. And that means that I can be brave in the midst of difficult circumstances because he's already overcome, because he has already won. Jesus has already overcome and that is why we see him in the throne room coming on the clouds. He receives his just reward, dominion, glory, and power. And do you guys wanna know what the absolute best part is? <laughs> when he walks up to the Ancient of Days and he is handed glory, dominion, and the kingdom, he turns around and he gives those keys to the kingdom to you and I. The one who gave up his entire life and died that we would live actually says, because you guys died for me here on this earth, that I may live, here's the kingdom, I did it for you. That's our God, that is who we serve. Thank you, Jesus, that's such a beautiful story. Verse 18 says, but the holy ones of the most high will receive the kingdom and possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting one which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let's pray, let's pray. Jesus, we exalt your name. There is no other name under heaven and earth by which man must be saved. As we look at your word, we thank you that you are the word, that you bring life through your word. God, we thank you for the challenge in this passage as we look at the areas of our lives, God, in which you are calling us to trust you. And Lord, just in the act of faith, God, we wanna say we trust you. You are in control. You see what's coming. You never forget about us. You're never caught off guard. And you've already won. Lord, we exalt in your resurrection. We bless you and we love you. Be glorified in this place. Amen.